Welcome to the Mad Singers Management Podcast from madsingers.com, where entrepreneurs and business managers learn and share. If you like the show, don't forget to leave a review. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Mad Singers Management Podcast. Today I have with me Josh Patrick, who I actually interviewed with last week on his podcast and I was so excited about particularly his background in disc as many of my listeners know I'm, I'm a keen fan of disc so I really wanted to bring Josh on this podcast and hear a lot about his background and so on he have done a lot of business you have a lot of experience as most of us both some good and some bad but uh, yeah I'm, I'm eager to talk with Josh today so first of all welcome to the show Josh. Thanks a lot Maz I appreciate being here. Excellent. So, uh, Josh, I would expect the majority of my audience don't know you yet. So do you want to blow them away and tell them a little bit about who you are? Sure. I'll give you a little bit of my background. I, uh, I'm 66 years old, starting business in 1976, where I had a part-time person with me. That was a business that was in the food service business where we fed people who worked in factories. I grew that business from uh, one part-time employee to 90 full-time employees with four branches. Ran it for 20 years, sold it in 1995, made every mistake you could possibly make along the way. Learned a lot from that stuff. Uh, realized I had no business background and my father was not the best business teacher in the world. So I had to learn stuff. So I started reading books and taking seminars and realized early on that if I really wanted to learn something, just volunteer to teach it because I had to go out and learn it so I could teach it. So I started doing that and that actually worked out pretty well for me. Uh, sold the business in 95, went into the wealth management business. My natural market was blue collar privately held businesses. And that's the group I've been servicing since then. And over the last 22 years or so, I've been working on strategies where we can help private business owners create excess cash in their business. And it really comes down to how good of a manager are you? And how good are you at managing the processes that happen within a business? So, you know, management, in my opinion, is really the key to having a great business. If you don't have good management, you can't have a great business. Otherwise, you have a great hobby. And, yeah, uh, that that uh, I I know a lot of people with great hobbies, or as I call it, uh, very frequently I say they built themselves a full time job. So that's yeah, that's often what people are trying to run away from when they are starting out in business. So yeah, I mean you you basically are, may have been working for somebody else. You thought you had a better mousetrap. You go and either go online and open the business, or you pick up a hammer and open your own construction company, or you know, you just decide to start a business, but you really don't know anything about running a business. And then if you're lucky, you find enough customers to keep you afloat for the first few months. And then you start hitting these hills and valleys where one month you have plenty of cash and the next month you have no cash because you have no customers. And then you have to go back and sell and you get plenty of cash and you get into this up and down place. And if you make it through that, and then you're in a position where you need to start hiring people. So the question is, will you hire employees who are going to be productive or are you going to have a bunch of helpers? Yep. And unfortunately, most people hire helpers. They don't hire productive employees. Yep. I like the way you put that across. So that's, uh, yeah, very much the way I look at it as well. So very good. Okay. And, um, one of my favorite questions and where I like to start is really figuring out what do you actually enjoy the most about managing people? And, and just some background to the question, right? Like a lot of people sort of look at management and they're like, whoa, this is complicated. This is difficult. I don't want to do this sort of thing. So I'm, I'm really keen on sort of hearing from different visitors, like what it really is that they really enjoy about the management piece. What I like is what it allows me to focus on. When I'm a good manager and I'm doing my job properly, I'm only doing work in my unique ability area. So I have unlimited energy. I have unlimited skill. 
I'm working on becoming world-class. I'm not working on becoming mediocre, which is what most business owners do. I'm focusing on my strengths and I'm having a lot of fun doing it. And I've got other people in my organization who are doing things at a world-class level that I'm terrible at. And I don't have to try to be all things to all people. I can just be what I'm good at. And for me, that's a lot of fun. Yep. That, uh, that sounds about right. And that's, uh, very much the way I, I like to look at business as well. And, and really particularly in the sense of making sure that you really like get away from the stuff you hate, right? Like one, one of the key things that I always focus on in the beginning is, is really make a list of what to get rid of first. And, uh, and personally in my life, it's always sales and marketing because that's what I kind of suck at. And, uh, <laughs> um, I either partner my way out of it or I hire someone to do it just because I really have very little joy doing it. So, yeah, well, that makes sense. You know, it's uh, one of the things I do with people is I ask them to write down every activity that they do in their business for two weeks. And then I ask them to go back and look at that list. And I'm going to actually add whether you enjoy it or not to my, my analysis. But what I really want them to do is write down, if I was to hire somebody else to do this particular activity, how much would I have to pay them? And anything that comes up on that list that's $15 an hour or less, you need to get off your plate today. Because if you're working for $15 an hour, which is what you're doing when you're doing that $15 per hour job, you're guaranteeing your business is not going to be successful. You're, you're, you're at least doing your best, the best you can to make sure it doesn't get successful, let's say it that right. way. You know, the, the truth is, the, the reason that businesses are successful is the owner has learned to work through others. Yeah, definitely. Okay, very good. And next up, what's sort of the biggest challenge that you have had from a management standpoint that you have overcome? And, and how did you sort of get through that? Um, that's... <laughs> That's a big question. It's a big question. I think it's. I think the same challenge. The challenge I have is the same for the vast majority of business owners, which is learning how to delegate. I mean, if you look at this is in the U.S. There's 28 million businesses in the United States. Only 150,000 of those businesses do more than 10 million dollars in sales. 22 million of those businesses have no employees at all which means the owner is doing everything. And the reason they're doing everything is that they've not learned how to delegate. And delegation is something that's hard to learn. It takes time. Nobody does it right out of the box. But once you learn how to do it, it's the magic sauce that allows you to grow your business. Yep. The way I learned about this was I had a business. We grew really fast in the first couple of years. The business was completely out of control. I ended up going to one of those new age seminars and I learned that that seminar, the problem in my business wasn't my employees, which is what I thought it was. The problem in my business was me and the way I interacted with my employees because I always would blame them or justify my actions when they did something wrong and then I would scream at them. And that never gets good reactions. So I went back, I stopped screaming, I stopped blaming, I stopped justifying. I started being personally responsible for what was going on in my company. And I started asking questions and telling, telling people what they did in a pejorative or a looking down manner. That sounds like a really good place to start. So how, how long did you feel that it take you? Like, was it literally you walked into the seminar and life was good after that? Or how long did you feel it sort of took you to, to, to at least master it or become somewhat decent at, at delegation? Well, I got somewhat decent probably in about a year, but to master it took me three or four years. And I would go, I would make some progress, I would fall back, I would make some progress, I would fall back, I would make some progress and fall back. And then I got to the point where I actually would tell myself the truth. And then I got to the point where I would let other people tell me their truth. And that's when I finally became a good delegator. When I got to the point where I would let people tell me their truth, and I would listen to it, and I wouldn't tell them they were wrong. I would just listen and say, how can I apply that to, to what I'm doing today? Excellent. 
Now, one of the things I love doing, Josh, is really when I, obviously hiring great people is, is excellent, but when you have a team of great people really identifying the cream of the crop, like sort of tomorrow's leaders, tomorrow's promotions and so on, do you have any good framework or any particular system you use to do that in, in your business? Yeah, I do actually. I have, a, I have a really good, I have what I consider a really good hiring system. And I also want to go something, you know, the vast majority of the people we hire are not going to be the stars of tomorrow. They're going to be the team, the, you know, a lot of times I use the metaphor of, of a professional football team. You know, and I once was at the Patriots training place and their player personnel, vice president player personnel, gave a talk on what they, how they thought about their team. And that was when Drew Bledsoe was their quarterback. So this was a long time ago. And he said, look, we have two or three people who we are not going to lose no matter what. Drew Bledsoe, and there was a defensive guy. I forgot who else it was. He said, we're going to do whatever it takes to keep these people. We're just not going to lose them. He said, then we have a group of eight or ten people who are really, really good. We're going to do everything we can to keep them in the company, but we can only go to a certain point, and then we're going to have to let them go. Then the rest of the people are players. They come and go. We want to treat them well while they're here, but it's a slot that gets filled. And if they have to go, we know we can find someone else to fill that particular slot. And I took that away and I said, gee, that's how most private businesses work also. There's one or two people in a private business where you absolutely can't afford to lose. Then you have a level below them who are your managers who are really good. And then we have our line workers and we want to treat them well. We want them to be happy because if they're not happy, they're going to sabotage us. Absolutely. So be really clear about that. But we're not going to try to hire all superstars because if we do, we have chaos running around in our company. So the methodology that I use to hire the right person for the right place, which I, you know, became Jim Collins, right person, right seat, um, is we start with values. In any company that hires, most companies hire for technical skills, and they never think about the values of their company when they hire. Technical skills should only be a screening mechanism. It should not be a decision point. A technical skill means you get into the hiring process. You don't get into the hiring process. It doesn't mean we hire you because you have the skill because all the people you're interviewing are going to have the skill. And then we get into values. And values, in my opinion, are the most important thing. So you need to spend time establishing what your core and aspirational values are in your company. And a core value is something that you do all the time. And aspirational value is something you want to be making to a core value at some time in the future, and you're on the road to getting there. And you want to be honest about which one is which. So as you're hiring people, you hire for values. If someone doesn't get an 8 out of 10 on all your values, you can't hire them. And then the step after that is what we call will-do factors. In other words, will they be doing the work? Where are they willing to do the activities in the work that make them successful? So we'll use DISC as a hiring tool on our values side, although it's not a values tool, but it tells me about behavior that will fit in with the values that I have. And when we get in the will do, we use Colby because that measures energy, not activity. So if I need a salesperson, and they have to be gregarious and sort of extroverted with the way our company works, I'm not going to be hiring somebody who is a, um, you know, has tons of energy for research, but no energy for interaction with other people. So you really want to be matching. There's three areas. Can do, which is the technical skills, but that's just a screen. Will do is are you willing to do the activities that are successful in the company? And then fit factors are the values. And I write no more than five under each level. And then as I'm interviewing somebody, we rate them on a scale of one to 10, with one being low and 10 being high. When you use this really, really simple system, you're going to get about an 85% success rate in hiring. And before I used that system, we were about 30% success rate, which is about average for most companies. They get to keep one out of three people they hire. So this will get you up to about eight or nine out of 10 that your hiring are going to work out well. Now, when you make that hiring error, and we all are going to make a hiring error, no matter what we use for that, you have to take action on that mistake 
quickly and you have to take responsibility for making a mistake in hiring. Don't blame the person who came to work for your company. You recruited them. Blame yourself. Apologize. Help them move on to a place where they will be successful and both you and they will be much happier. Yeah. And that's definitely one of the things I learned actually pretty early on, uh, which I'm very happy with, was, was this fact, like, uh, obviously, no matter what, it's always horrible having to, to say goodbye to people, right? But the fact that, like, one of the things I saw was that performance is very closely correlated to happiness. If you keep people around just to keep them at job, one of the things that happens is they are generally unhappy, because if you're working in a job where you're not performing, the likelihood that you're happy is significantly lower than if you are. What happens is a lot of people just grab onto a job and stay there as long as possible, but actually letting them go very, very frequently uh, gets them a much better situation, gets them a better job that fits them well, or fits them better at least. And uh, you're actually doing them a huge disservice in general by, by keeping them around in a job that they don't fit well to and aren't performing well in. So that was sort of one of the lessons I learned pretty early on that, that have been really beneficial for me at least in, in terms of sort of letting go of people uh, pretty quickly when you realize it's not the right person. Right. Yeah. And the truth is they know they're having a problem also. Yep. It's not like, you know, it's a big secret to them that, they, that they're not fitting in well. They know that and they just don't want to bring it up for a variety of reasons because people, you know, are we, we tend to live in a scarcity mindset, not an abundance mindset. And these folks are saying, if I quit this job, I'll never get another job, which yep. is not true. But if we bring it to them, there'll be a sigh of relief. And if we're fair about helping them find a new place to go, then we're going to leave on good terms. Yeah. And what, one of the sort of systems I always use when, when I'm looking at people is when they're not performing, when they're not delivering as expected, I always look at two angles. Um, one of them is, is it a good person and the wrong fit? Or is it the wrong type of person and the wrong fit, right? Because sometimes you will uh, effectively hire people for the wrong roles. So you'll hire them for a role that they're not a good fit for, but they might still be a great fit for your company and for your sort of your values and so on, right? And I've, I've definitely had a, a lot of success with, with really actually getting people into the right roles uh, even though they didn't necessarily perform in the job that they were initially hired for, right? But again, that really requires a lot of honesty with yourself. And again, you have to be super blunt with people, right? Like it's not just a, uh, oh, well, you don't work here, then I'll get you to work somewhere else, right? Like it's, it, it really have to be like a very, very blunt conversation that sort of say, hey, listen, this is not going well in, in this area, right? Like, what what is the options right and and um yeah i've definitely had some success with that you least. know i i think that I, we also have had some success with that too and i think the the thing that's really important to remember here is that because we mostly have small companies the unfortunate thing is if we hire the person for a particular job and not good in that job we likely will not have another job we can move them to yeah then need to find a nice way of saying, you're a great person. I wish I had a job for you. I yeah. just don't have something that fits your skill set. And, and actually, that can be dangerous as well, because sometimes you're like, wow, that's a great person. Let me fit them into something else. And if you don't actually have a need for that role, and there isn't a good business justification and, and uh, it doesn't make sense. I've definitely seen company getting hurt by that where they're desperately trying to hold on to good people, but it didn't really justify having them do something else, right? Where they try to hold on to them anyway. And that hundred percent agree with what you're saying. Like you, you, you need to be very, very clear. Is there an actual requirement to have this person around? Yeah, absolutely. So also one, one thing that I, I just picked up on that, as you said, with, with sort of the, the success rate and, and so on, right? Like one of the key things for me is always to your, your screening process. Like I, I really look at recruitment as sales, right? And I think where a lot of companies go wrong, right? Is like if you, let's say you pick out 10 candidates or 20 candidates, right? The better the screening process you have is, the bigger the likelihood that you'll get a good person. 
right? Because if you're interviewing uh, 10 people and one out of 10 is potentially really good, if you can make that number four out of 10 or six out of 10, your likelihood of getting a good person is, is significantly higher, right? So I always work a lot with my client on making sure the sort of initial piece of the process, it really get a lot of candidates in, but really able to screen to, to improve the odds, right? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the ways you can do that is how you write your ad. I, I tried an experiment recently where instead of writing a lot about the job, I wrote a lot about our values and a little bit about the job. And the number of applicants I got and the number of quality applicants I got was mind-boggling. I mean, this is in Burlington, Vermont, where our unemployment rate is under 3% and has been under 3% for a zillion years. And we were hiring a part-time person getting paid $17 an hour, not a high, high-paid skilled job. And we got a bunch of terrific people applying for the job. And I think it was a result. In fact, I did ask this to people. So what made you apply to us? And they said, what you wrote about your values. Yeah, and I, I think that's really good. I mean, I, I, when you write a job at, right, like one of the key things I always think about is if you have a person sitting in front of you and they say, oh, I'm here because I need a job, right? You have the wrong person. They have to be there because they want your company. Like they want to work for you. You have to have sold them on either your values, the business, like you have to have sold them really on you. You are the company they want to be with, right? Like they, they have to, you can't just be, well, whatever was top of the stack, right? You have to put yourself in a situation where they, they pick you and they want you specifically, not just anyone anywhere. Yeah, and right, Madsen, you also want to make sure that your listeners are aware. This is not just for people who are going to sit in the office next to you. This methodology should be used for your virtual assistants because you want to make them part of your company and not just be somebody who you call up to do a project once in a while. And it should be with your outside paid advisors. Everybody who interacts with your company should go through a screening process and make sure they're the right person and they're the right, the right place to do the job that you want them to do, whether they're a full-time employee next door, a virtual assistant, or a consultant, including your accountant and lawyer. Yep. Yep, I, I totally agree. Totally agree. So what's, what's one of the things, Josh, or what, what generally do you do when, when you have, when you're managing a company and you have managers within that, how do you make sure they deliver well? Because one of the things I see is, again, people bring in people and, and quite often pretty, pretty good staff uh, who are given management responsibility, but somehow they're not very effective at getting the best out of them. So what, what sort of process or what, what do you generally do to try and make sure you, your managers get the most out of the responsibility they have? Um, well, I do uh, several things. One is I attempt to have every manager have their own profit and loss statement. Um, you know, with today's computer systems, it's really easy to set up divisional divisions all over the place. And you can set up a division for every manager that they're actually managing a P&L. And the second thing is the conversation that we have with our managers. I'm a big fan of Stephen Covey's uh, uh, system of using big rocks, where they have a big rock every quarter, and every two weeks, every three weeks, we have a review meeting around the big rocks to see are we on track, are we off track, and if we're off track, what do we need to do to get back on track? And if the stuff is project-based, which much of it is, I want my managers to be learning some sort of a efficiency system, whether it be lean or the theory of constraints or agile. I tend to like agile above all the others, but I'm not going to say you can't do that. The problem with lean is it's developed for Toyota. And unless you have a couple hundred employees, you're not going to have the resources to do it right. The theory of constraints actually for many of your listeners is the best because I call that whack-a-mole for business. Yeah. This is the theory of constraints. You're waiting for a problem to pop up. You fix that bottleneck and you wait for the next bottleneck to appear and you fix that. 
It's a really simple improvement methodology, uh, but it's a methodology, and most of us don't have one. We just yeah. kind of blindly ping off things without having any system behind how we're going to improve. Yeah. Okay, excellent. I, I like that way of looking at things. Um, one of the things that I also focus a lot on, when you bring in new employees to your business, when you actually spend the time making that hire, one of the actual key processes, at least from my point of view, is sort of your whole onboarding, like how do you bring them into your business, et cetera. What, what is your magical secret for that piece of the process and, and any great tips and so on for the audience? I wish I had a magical piece of that process. Um, I mean, what we've always done is that we um, systematize our business with written documentation as much as possible. And we, if possible, we have somebody there training the person, not while the job is being done, but training the person to do the job. Let me give you an example. When I had my food service company, we would hire a route driver, the people that go out and fill the vending machines you know, put the sandwiches and the soda and the candy and clean the machines and give refunds and all that kind of stuff. And for years and years and years, we trained the person while, while doing a route, meaning they were out in the field doing this. And the trainer would be more interested in getting the job done than making sure the new employee was well-trained. One day we happened to have a full vending bank in our, in our warehouse we say, instead of training the person in the field, why don't we take two weeks and train them in-house and see what happens? And when we train the person in-house, instead of spending 17 hours the first day they were out in the field by themselves, they managed to get back in 10 hours. And they were more highly trained. They were happier. We reduced our turnover with new people dramatically as a result of that. And what we learned by doing that was when you train somebody, you need to train the person not do the job while they're looking over your shoulder. Yeah. So you need to have a trainer whose job is to look over the new employee's shoulder and help them correct as they make mistakes as they're learning the new activities. Yeah. I, I like that look of it as well. I mean, what, one of the things that I always see happening constantly creates a, a lot of inefficiency is people nowadays, they love video and video is a great tool, but they're very good at recording a video, sending it to someone and then just letting them go. And then six months later, realize that everything they've been doing the last six months uh, is totally wrong because there was something they've misunderstood. Right, and, and that comes—that's actually a delegation issue, right there. Definitely, uh, but but one of the one of the key things that I I've really found effective is when you when you're looking at uh, the sort of delegation process from that standpoint, right? Really, what you want to be doing is you want to make sure not just show people what to do and say, "Hey, are you great to go?" But you actually want to make sure that they. Um, that you're looking at them doing it in the beginning, particularly sort of more complex tasks, right? So looking over their shoulder because it's so much easier fixing uh, misunderstandings in the beginning than if people have actually been doing the wrong thing for a longer period of time. And obviously it's a lot more effective fixing it in the beginning. So you don't have a, a big mess to clean up. Right. Yeah. My first mentor had a great system. He used to call it EIA. And EIA stands for expect, inspect, accept. Yeah. So if I set an expectation for what a job is supposed to be, I go back, inspect it to make sure it's been done right, and then I accept the work. But if it's not done right, I have to go back and reset the expectation and then do the inspection again. And the inspection needs to be soon. It, doesn't, it can't be a week or two or three weeks down the road. It needs to be the next day. Yeah, Definitely. And as somebody's with you longer and longer and longer, you can take your inspections and probably move them out a bit, but you still have to be inspecting what you ins expect or you never get what you want. Yep, definitely. Now, next one is, what do you find unique about your specific management style? Like, what do you feel that you really do quite different than most of the people that you've met? Um, 
Well, I actually do the stuff for one thing. Uh, <laughs> and I'm I like that one. myself when I'm not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the people who are, I mean, there are best practices in running a business. Now, Matt, I'm going to assume you had the same experience with the podcast I have, is that when I have a guest who knows what they're doing, they're telling me in a little bit different language all the stuff I've been telling my clients for years and years and years. And I use in my company for years and years and years. And if you listen to Patrick Lencioni or Steve Farber or, you know, there's a whole host of people out there who have great advice for how to run a business and it's best practices. I mean, Jim Collins is in that world. It's not, it's not rocket science and it's not that difficult, but you have to be looking at yourself in a different manner and be honest with yourself and take responsibility for what happens in your company. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, what, one of the ways I look at it, uh, I mean, a lot of people look at management and say, oh, that's complicated and all that. I, I look at it the other way around. I think management is relatively simple. The difficult piece of management for me, at least, is, is one, being honest with yourself, but, but really learning to do the right things because that, that's all, like, whatever personality you have, right? There's something that just comes supernatural and there's something that's very difficult, yeah, I mean, and we're going back to, you know, the amount of successful businesses in the United States. You know, there's 28 million businesses, only 300,000 do more than $5 million in sales. That's not even 1%. Yeah. And the, you know, it, it, well, that's actually more than 1%, but it's, well, actually it's not. Um, you know, you're looking at, you're looking at a very, very small group of people who have figured out how to be good managers. Most people who own their own businesses are terrible managers. I'm, it's cringeworthy when you watch what they do. If you have less than 10 employees in your company, I would really invite you to do a 360 review, which means you do a, an anonymous review where your employees rate you as well as you rating them. And my bet is you're going to be really surprised and how badly they think you're doing. Yeah. And then you have the opportunity to either correct it or not. I mean, it's up to you. I mean, if you want to, if you're happy with your business at 10 employees and you're doing things you don't enjoy very much and keep doing it. But if you want to build a business that's sustainable, that somebody else wants to own at some point in the future, you have to make yourself operationally irrelevant and you can't make yourself operationally irrelevant until you become a really good manager. Yep. hundred percent agree on that. And I think that's, I mean, for, for, for a large portion of people, right. It, it is that like that they all have the dream. They all have the dream of this automatic running building uh, company and, and you know, they're like, Oh, but it's not possible and it's difficult. And, and, and really for me, it's investment, right? It's investment in the time it's investment in, in having to make those changes. So for me, like I look at it similar to going to the gym, right? For a lot of people going to the gym is, is difficult. It's hard. It's something they probably should be doing, but, you know, a, a few people sort of break through it and, and they, they end up doing it consistently and get really good and, and you know, everything works well. And, and that's really the same thing you have to do with management. Whatever it is your struggles are, whatever it is you're, you're, you sort of feel you're good or bad at, like you have, to, you have to keep working at it, right? You have to keep chipping away at the stuff that you're, that you're struggling with. And, and it's not like I have so many clients coming to me sort of saying, oh, can I not just hire someone to manage most of my people? people and then I can just be the CEO and I'm like it's not how it works <laughs> right <laughs> it's not like like yeah don't get me wrong having a good operations manager is is beneficial and it's helpful but like if you want to be the CEO I mean if, if you sort of say okay I don't want to manage people I want to hire someone to do the CEO role that's sort of a different angle but if you want to no, be a business owner game. I mean you know yeah. essentially if you're hiring a rent to see, whether it's CEO, CMO, CFO, CIO, you're hiring somebody to help you with strategy. Yep. If you're hiring a operations manager, you're hiring somebody to implement the tactics in your business. But you still have to be managing what those tactics are. Yep. 
And you going back to the we going going back to the you know, beginning of our conversation is how do you know what to do and how to delegate it? Well, make a list of the things you're good at and the things you're not good at, and be honest, and find someone to do the stuff you're not good at, and spend all your time focusing on how you can become better at what you're good at. Yep, definitely. You know, I, I tell people all the time, I want to be world-class at what I'm good at. And I never want to do anything I'm bad at because it's no fun. Yep. 100%. Spot on. Yeah. 100%. So, again, another favorite question of mine. I have a lot, apparently. <laughs> um, so, we all aren't perfect, right? And one of the key things that I always talk about with my clients is some of the struggles I have because even as a management coach, like I make mistakes all the time. Yeah. Uh, the benefit by sort of knowing and, and sort of understanding a lot of the theory behind it is the fact that you actually caught onto it a lot faster and you're like, oops, I did the wrong thing here. Um, and, and what I would say is like everyone makes mistakes, right? So what's one of the things even though you've been running businesses for a long time, what's one of the things that you still feel you trip up in once in a while? What are, what, what's one of the sort of key challenges that you feel you're still working on improving? Uh, I just made it. <laughs> I just decided I made this mistake about 10 days ago. And it's a mistake I've made over and over again. Someday I'll stop making it, but I made it. And the mistake very simply was I was on a podcast with somebody who's very famous in, in the wealth management world. I had lots of people in the wealth management world call up and say, I want to learn how you work with private business owners. And I really don't have a lot of energy with teaching other advisors how to do this because I've tried it in the past and it's never worked out very well. So where my passion really is, is working with blue collar business owners and helping them create great businesses. So I allowed myself to be sidetracked from developing an online course I'm working on, which will help blue collar businesses figure out what they need to do become from what I'm calling cracking the cash flow code, which is to have enough cash to fill the four areas of business that are important. I allowed myself to be taken off on this side track of developing a course on how to train other people to do this. And I can do it, but I had no passion about it and I was hating it. So I finally said, you know something? I really don't want to do this after all. I'm going to dump all the stuff in the basket and I'm going to go back to working on my blue collar project, which is what I've been working on for the last 10 days, having a lot more fun doing it and saying, now I'm doing something good for the world, not something which is just going to help other people make a bunch of money. Yep. I love it. And, and uh, I mean, that's one of the key things for me with the sort of self-management and discipline. It's always like, sometimes it's the same thing you slip up with again and again, and sometimes it's different things, but it's really, again, it comes down to that discipline and sort of grabbing yourself in it and, you know, turning it around. And, and I think fundamentally, again, if you don't, if you're too busy working in your business, if you don't have the time to step back once in a while and really sort of say, what am I working on? Is this my priorities? Like you are much more likely to have those slip ups, right? Well, yes, yes and no. I mean, I mean, it took me maybe 15 minutes of thought to say this is not working. And then it took me another 15 minutes to think about why it wasn't working. And then do a fast dive into, you know, why I, my five whys of what I wanted to do and why I wanted to do this. And I realized that very rapidly that the what, which is, you know, putting together this online training program was for the wrong group. So, you know, I have a process I call the stage two decision process. And it goes, what, why, what, who, how. We start off with a posture, which is what we want to do. And then I dig down into why five, six, seven times to say, what's the core reason around this what? And I go back and revisit the what it is I want to do. And most of the time it changes because I find a more elegant way to get to where my why will get me to. 
And then after I do that, I say, okay, who do I need to help me to make this into a success? Because we never do anything by ourselves. And after I've done that, then I get to what most people start with, which is how. Most people, when they make a decision, they start with what it is they want to do. They immediately go to how to get it done. And then they work on it and they put all this effort into it. And they won't give it up because they put all this effort into it, which is called sunk costs. And they end up spinning their wheels for years. Well, by me using my methodology, I quickly made an experiment, realized it was the wrong place to be, and did a pivot. Yep. And that's what you need to do to be successful in business. Definitely. And, and yeah, I mean, definitely, I, I learned the, the, the whole asking the why question a lot of times. I learned that from, from Six Sigma as well, right? Like, it's, it's, it was definitely a very, very powerful method to... Yeah, so to, it, it, it comes from, it actually comes from W.E. Edwards, W.E. W. Edward Demings. Um, and it's an integral part of the Toyota production system, which is lean. Yep. So, in Six Sigma is a... <laughs> came out of lean and you should not do Six Sigma unless you have an advanced degree in math. I, I, I've found a lot of reasons not to do it, but uh, and, I, and I, I shouldn't do it anyhow. I mean, unless you're, unless you're Motorola, forget about it. Yeah. That, no, I mean, that's, I mean, I used to work corporate obviously with, with companies like IBM, et cetera. So, so very large scale businesses where, where it made sense. Um, and, and there was definitely some, some good examples where, where it really made sense to do it. But again, just like everything it became one of these processes that, oh, it sounds cool to do it. Let's do this Six Sigma thing. So again, instead of first sort of analyzing the, the benefits and opportunities and so on, it became more like a, oh, yeah, I want the certification, this thing, let's do this project, right? Rather than actually really analyzing well, if it makes sense. Into your group, I'm going to bet you have a lot of listeners who have read the e-myth and say, I want to adopt the e-myth. And unless you're an engineer, I would highly discourage you from adopting the e-myth. What I would encourage you to look at instead is Traction by Gino Wickman, if you want to use a system. Because yep. Gino's system is simple. Whereas the e-myth has nine zillion moving pieces. And one thing most entrepreneurs I know is they're not very detail-oriented. And unless you're detail-oriented, you're not going to use the e-myth because it was designed by an engineer for engineers. Yeah. So you want to use the right tool, which is essentially what I'm saying here, is make sure the tool fits with what you're going to do. One of the reasons I like the theory of constraints, which is the simplest of all the process improvements, is that it's so simple, I can explain it to you in three minutes, and you know what to do. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's the, good. You know, the next simplest is Agile, which now is being adopted, by the way, by the biggest companies. You, know, you, you might notice that if you have to restart Chrome about every two weeks because Google has rolled out a new upgrade, which they don't tell you, but you have to restart because none of your ad, you know, your, your, you know, the things you put in there don't work anymore. Um, and what it is, is that they're producing a new product with an upgrade every two weeks. And that system will help you go really, really fast. And, you know, I, I tell my contractors all the time, you know, like if you build a house, use Scrum to build the house. You'll go a lot faster. You're gonna, you have an unfair advantage over all your competitors by doing that. And I look for unfair advantages all the time. That's my, my sort of thing. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. Okay, very good. Very good, Josh. Um, oh. Now, just before we wrap up, any kind of tips, tricks, amazing resources, et cetera, for uh, all the entrepreneurial listeners that you can think of that you haven't shared already? Well, I, I, I think that um, the biggest challenge I see with small businesses, you know, with startups, whether you're online or in the physical space, is understanding your marketplace and going through a process to do that. Uh, there's a book by my friend Michael Port called Book Yourself Solid. And I like the illustrated version because it has all the exercises that are written out in there. It's about 20 bucks. You buy it and go through it. You're going to have a really clear sense of who you should be selling to, how you should be selling to them, and the methodology you should be using to stay in touch with them. In my opinion, 
the most important thing you can do when you start a business or you have a small business is get enough customers paying you enough money so you can get a paycheck every week. That's your first goal in business. Paycheck sounds good. Paycheck, paycheck sounds good. I call it paychecks happen every week. Yeah. And it's no. one of the stages in our success path for cracking the cash flow code. Yeah. No, I think, uh, I mean, personally, I've, you mentioned both traction, which I think is, is amazing. And um, I, I think definitely from a mindset standpoint, it's one of those books that it, it's graphical and it's simple enough or it's visual and simple enough to, to make it like to make it actionable enough. Right. So I, I see a lot of people in, in our community at least use it with, with great success. Right. Which is, which is what you want in a book, right? It, it has to be actionable, not just for half a percent of the world population. Actually, no, no, but it's, it's my, it's, if there's one business book to read, that's it. I can give you a whole list of other books to read, but the book you want to start with is Traction by Gino Wickman. It gives you a simple system to run your business that's easy to implement. And you have already given me one other, but could you give me a last one, a, a last hidden diamond in the book world? Um, my favorite book, it's actually two books, and they're written by the same group, is On Sales because I think people have a really bad conception about how to sell. Yep. One is called the challenger sale. And in the book, they say the best salespeople don't necessarily make best friends with their clients. They challenge them to think differently about the problem they have and they have a solution for that different thought. The other side of that is called the challenger customer, which is how do you do a complex sale into a group where there are multiple decision makers in the company and who should you be talking to in that company and how should you be talking to them? Now, if you're in the online world, um, the challenger customer probably is not going to be especially important, but the challenger sale is crucially important because it's going to teach you how to write your ad copy. Yeah. And that's where I see an awful lot of mistakes being made is people are not challenging their participants to think differently about the problem you're trying to solve for them. Interesting. So are, that's a great book also. Excellent. And of course, you can always read my book if you want, which is... <laughs> I, I was fishing a little bit for that, but... Uh... <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's, you know... This is not like the ultimate in the world, but it's going to help you really think about your business in a more rational manner. It's a book called Sustainable, a fable about creating a personally and economically sustainable business. It's a novel. I wrote it as a story because I find stories are easier to consume than how-to books. Yeah. Well, it just uh, My friend Steve Farber just released his first how-to book. He's always written stories. And he told me that the publishers don't like these parables, these business parables, for some reason, and they want how-to books. Um, I don't get it, but okay. Because I think the most effective writers are people like Patrick Lencioni and Steve Farber. And, you know, those people have written stories that you can say, I identify with the characters, and I'm going to do something based on that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I personally have a couple of books that oh, I really like the story element. I, I think a, a simple, very good book like Rich Dad, Poor Dad is, is, is so powerful because of the story, all right? Yeah, well, uh, I actually know the characters in those stories. Exactly. Because yeah. I was, that New Age seminar I talked about a while ago yeah. was with the guy who was Bob Kiyosaki's mentor. Mm. So Excellent. He's a rich dad, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> in the book. So, any rate, um, yeah, that's a great book. And the, and the best thing about Rich Dad Poor Dad is what's an asset and what's a liability. Yeah, that's what I took away from that. Is your house is not an asset; it's a liability. Yeah. Assets create positive cash flow. Liabilities eat cash. Simple. Yeah, I love yeah. that. I love and, that concept. And, but but I think it really like I think pretty much anyone that I've met that read it is like I wish I read this when I was eighteen. Right, right. Because uh, for a lot of people, like they they go through life looking at things the way most people do, which is you know grow up, buy a car, buy a house, you, you know put yourself in 
significant depth and life will be great. Uh, I mean, the, the goal by uh, um, uh, Elia Goldratt is another, you know, it's again, it's a novel, it's a story, but it's going to teach you about the theory of constraints in a very simple manner. You're going to walk away saying, I can do this. Excellent. Yeah. Right, Jess. Um, thank you very, very much for your contribution today. I, I'm sure that will be very exciting for my audience to have a listen to all these golden nuggets. And uh, I've definitely topped up my, uh, my reading list. So I, I've read many, many books in my life, but uh, I'm always looking for new ones. So I got a new couple of hints and tips. Right now, which I don't find especially, um, like one of my clients says, Islands of Profit and Sea of Red Ink, and essentially, it's just 80-20 in your business. Yeah. If you read 80-20 by Perry Marshall, or, yeah, Perry Marshall. Yeah. It's sort of similar. But this is, you know, this is a good book also. I would highly, I recommend it only because it allows you to think about um, segmenting your customer base and know who your best customers are than clone them. Yeah. I mean, you know, 15 years ago, I wrote an ebook called Clone Your Best Customer. And Excellent. what you basically do is you do a P&L on your customers. You decide which ones are the most profitable. What do they all have in common? You build a profile from that, and that's who you sell to. Yep. Not hard. It's, it's simple. It's simple. So that's I'm, how I came up with blue-collar businesses. I'm currently that's reading, yeah. reading Sapiens, yeah, which is – I'm rereading it for the second time, but I, I really like it. That's uh, yeah, very I mean, eye-opening in many ways. If, so. if you like the concept of personal responsibility – uh, Ryan Adams has written a great book on the Stoics, which I highly recommend. I'm a big I, fan of Stoicism. I, I have read a lot about that. So yeah, I'm a, yeah. I uh, recently wrote a couple of blog posts on why libertarianism doesn't work because of the concept of homo economists. And I, what I've realized is I'm really more in line with the Stoics than I am with the libertarians. Yep. Um, although my libertarian friends think I'm, I've been blasphemous with my, what I've been writing about recently. I said, well, okay, I'm glad you believe that. But the truth is, unless we act rationally, libertarianism is not going to work. And we don't act rationally, so it's not going to work. That's, uh, acting rational is, is one of those hopes. Yeah, it's a hope. It's not, it's not how we do things. No. So, well, cool. Thanks for your time today. Very good. Yeah, it was great, Josh. Uh, if people are desperate to contact you after listening to this episode, what's the best way to get hold of you oh, and what's yeah, the best uh, way to interact? Yeah, uh, my email is jpatrick at stage2planning.com. You have my email. Yep. Um, they can call me if they want. That's fine. 802-846-1264, extension 102. Um, or they can just go to my website and do the contact us page, which nobody uses, but it's there. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent, Josh. Cool. Well, thank you very much for your time. It was a pleasure thank to you. have you. Thank you for, for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Mad Singers Management Podcast. Please leave a review. It means the world to us. You can also learn more about management at madsingers.com.